When the typical American evangelical thinks of material wealth, they have difficulty realizing our relative prosperity. I've had the privilege to spend a good amount of time in Haiti, the Dominican Republic, in Bulgaria, and other third world countries. And the first thing that always is shocking is, well, the rest of the world doesn't live like us economically. I want you to go through an exercise with me for just a moment and see how daily life is for 2.4 billion people in today's world. First, take out all the furniture in your home except for one table and two chairs. Use blankets for beds. Second, take away all of your clothing except for your oldest dress or suit or shirt or blouse and leave only one pair of shoes. Third, empty the pantry except for a small bag of flour, some sugar and salt, a couple of potatoes and onions, and a dish of dried beans. Fourth, dismantle your bathroom, shut off the running water, and remove all the electrical wiring in your house. Fifth, take away the house itself and move the family into your tool shed. Sixth, place that tool shed in a shanty town. Seventh, cancel all subscriptions to newspapers, magazines, This is no great loss because no one in your house can read anyway. Eighth, leave one radio for the whole shantytown. Ninth, move the nearest hospital or clinic 20 miles away and put a midwife in charge instead of a doctor. Tenth, throw away all your stock certificates, pension plans, and insurance policies and leave the family a cash hoard of $10. Eleventh, give the head of the family a few acres to cultivate on which he can raise a few hundred dollars of cash crops, of which one-third will go to the landlord and one-tenth to the money lenders. And twelfth, lop 25 years off your life expectancy. I could go on and on. By comparison, everyone in this room is fabulously wealthy. With our wealth comes responsibility to use it wisely, not to be wasteful, but especially to help others. How often today as you come to this place do your thoughts run to your possessions, how to get them, how to keep them, how to get more of them? Do you see it as a problem ever that your thoughts, your conversations, your fantasies and desires dwell on these things, your possessions and your funds? I'm planning for some of you, perhaps many of you, to take offense at this text today. And it's not because I'm intending to be provocative, but it's because so many Americans, especially evangelicals, are so defensive about their acquisitive lifestyle. And they need to justify it. If there is a place where we as evangelicals are worldly, it's here. Our culture dwells on and is fixated by the getting of possessions. But our Lord, as you will see, and this is certainly, if you have a red-letter Bible, you will see all of this is in red. But our Lord Jesus wants to focus on relinquishing our possessions. You and I need to hear this word. Let's seek the help of the Lord now. Our Father, send now the Holy Spirit. So that that as the word is proclaimed, we will hear it in all its force and power. Let all other words slip away. May there be one voice that we hear this morning, the voice of truth and grace, the voice of Jesus. 
We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I hope you have your Bible open to Luke chapter 12 because you'll need it. And I want you to, to clearly see that the words we're discussing today aren't Carl's sociopolitical economic ramblings. These are the words of Jesus. In verse 13 and 14, we have the occasion for the parable. Now, if you've never been with us before, we are right in the middle of a lengthy series on the parables of Christ. And we're trying to do something at the same time. You'll notice, if you're, if you're sort of aware, that in the mornings we're looking at parables, which requires some interpretive skill. And in the evening service, we're looking at types of Christ, Old Testament types. Tonight we'll be looking at the type of Christ of the year of Jubilee. And you'll certainly want to join us tonight at 6 p.m. as we worship, as we do every Sunday. But this morning, we want to see, first of all, the occasion for this parable. Look at verse 13 and 14. And... <clears throat> I want to ask, when you look at this, have you ever been in a situation where someone was just sort of off? Where the discussion was about one thing, but the participant keeps steering the discussion into a misdirection. And that's what's happening in verse 13 and 14 as you look at it carefully. Here is the only Savior of men, the bringer of eternal life, and this odd man, this man who just doesn't get it in verse 13, is asking Jesus about adjudicating a dispute a family squabble over a few shekels. This is what's known in logic as a non sequitur. What in the world did this demand in verse 13 and 14 have to do with the preceding discussion? Where Jesus has been talking about hypocrisy and the fear of God. Well, it has nothing to do. And perhaps you know this guy. He's so fixated on his issue that no matter what else the conversation is about, he's got to bring it up. Well, this man was so wrapped up in possessions, see him there in verse 13, that he had to bring it up. He had to bring up this inappropriate situation and show his selfish concern. Now, obviously, if you look at verse 13, there are two men embroiled in some kind of a squabble over a will. There's an old Peruvian proverb when I was in the third world country of Peru up in the mountains of Cajamarca with our dear missionary Alonso Ramirez. Nothing's changed in 2,000 years, and we went into a house, and this exact same conversation took place, and Alonzo was fiercely trying to adjudicate this. And as we walked out, Alonzo said something in Spanish, and I said, what did you just say? And he translated for me. It's an old proverb in Peru. Wherever there's an inheritance, all the family members are wolves. And that's exactly what's happening here. It's obvious this man hasn't been listening to Jesus' careful and powerful spiritual lessons. All he can think about is getting. His whole being is preoccupied. Now, there's a profound application even here. Look at verse 13. This, this man is proof, in case you needed any, that men can sit under powerful preaching. This man has just been sitting under Jesus, the most powerful preacher ever, and he didn't get the point or think about eternal matters. And Jesus has just been talking about issues of life and death and eternity, and he wants to talk about settling his will. While others have heard the powerful preaching of Christ, all this man can hear is, well, this guy, Jesus, is an articulate man. He's skilled in refuting others. To him, Jesus is a good lawyer, a mouthpiece, or more exactly, a judge. He doesn't ask Jesus to decide between the merit of the two claims. Look carefully at verse 13. What he asked for is for Jesus to be a judge and give him a decision in his favor. Jesus will have nothing to do with it. 
He came to bring men to God, not property to men. Jesus tells him in verse 14, look at it carefully, that there is a proper realm for such things. That's the civil magistrate. There were Jewish laws that covered such things. If you're familiar with the Pentateuch at all in Deuteronomy 21 or Numbers 27, there was an equivalent in Israel of our small claims court, and it functioned very efficiently in Jerusalem. Now, one day Jesus will stand in judgment over everything, but that day had not yet come. Jesus refuses to intervene, not because he's unqualified to do so, but because he's not called to do so. But more than that, he refuses to get involved because no answer he could give or adjudication he could make would solve the real problem. A heart of greed. A mind filled with covetousness. And like this, like many people today, this man wanted Jesus to serve him, not save him. So Jesus then gives a warning against covetousness. And I want you to notice in how many ways linguistically and psychologically Jesus addresses this. And so if you're the person who already has your shield up and you're thinking, you're not getting through to me. I love my stuff and I love my money and I love to think about it and fantasize it and plan for it and hoard it. You are not getting through to me. Jesus is going to come at you in several directions through his word. Look at verse 15. First of all, Jesus just makes a statement, a moral statement. Take heed, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Now, a quick linguistic note. The word translated in our translation, verse 15, is covetousness, is often translated greed. And it means the lust to have, an endless grasping for more. It describes the person who lives in perpetual transgression of the Tenth Commandment of coveting. Just like the case of the rich young ruler in Luke 18, Jesus lays bare a deeper problem than the one the individual started from. Greed. And greed is insatiable. It's all-consuming. The person who's greedy all of their life becomes focused on the accumulation of wealth and stuff. There's no room for anything else or anyone else, even or especially the living God. This is why it's so hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Covetousness appears in many ways. The chief ways are clutching hard what is already possessed and grasping for more stuff. Greed and covetousness is always idolatry because it worships the God of stuff and possessions. Unless greed is restrained, mortified, repented of, it will ruin you. Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6 when he says, Those who desire to be rich always fall into a temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which many have strayed from the faith in their greediness. And pierce themselves through with many sorrows. Greed and covetousness is folly. No one enjoys any happiness, any rest for his soul or his life by buying a couch or a car or a skirt or some shoes. According to Ecclesiastes 5, enough never satisfies the greedy man. Did you hear that? Enough never satisfies the coveters. The writer of Ecclesiastes says, 
He who loves silver will never be satisfied with silver, nor he who loves abundance with increase. One of my preaching heroes was the brilliant English minister Hugh Latimer, who was burned at the stake as a 70-year-old man in 1555 by the Roman Catholics in London. His preaching was notoriously intense and searching. And when he preached this text, Latimer came to verse 15. And he read it three times. And he turned to sit down, and before he did, he looked back at the congregation. He said, I need not say anything else. Jesus said a great danger, and it's fascinating that Jesus talked more about two issues than any other, yet contemporary evangelical preachers usually refuse to preach on these two. Hell and money. Jesus said a great deal about the danger of wealth, but very few contemporary evangelicals seem to be afraid of riches. Today, a man may constantly break the Tenth Commandment against coveting and greed and only will view himself as enterprising and entrepreneurial. When Jesus says, take heed and beware of covetousness, this means to take positive action to ward off an attacker. This requires, verse 15, constant vigilance. If Jesus' words in verse 15 mean anything, they mean this. The acquisitive lifestyle is a lie. It says, no, Jesus is wrong in verse 15. Life truly does consist in the abundance of things I possess. And the more stuff I get, the better quality of life I'll have. But if John is true, when he says in 1 John 2, this world is passing away, then greed is dangerous because it aims your life in a direction contrary to what really matters. Stuff and savings cannot bring happiness. Only those who hunger and thirst after righteousness will be satisfied. Jesus alone is the bread of life who can fill your soul. He alone is the living water who can quench your thirst. He is the life, according to John 14. It was this sin, covetousness, which caused the evil one to fall. He was not content with his first estate. He coveted something different. It was this sin, covetousness, which helped to drive Adam and Eve out of paradise and brought death into the world. Our first parents were dissatisfied with what God had given them in Eden. This sin has been, since the dawn of creation, a cause for misery, unhappiness, strife, and quarrels. If you have little, be sure that it would not be good for you to have much. Did you hear me? Today, if you have little... It would not be good for you to have much. The old Scottish Presbyterian proverb is, it takes a steady hand to hold a full cup. If the things you have are taken away, be satisfied that God has wise and holy reasons for doing so. Happy is the man who knows and obeys Hebrews 13. Let your conduct be without greed. Be content with the things you have, for as he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. The Apostle Paul repeatedly condemned greed. For example, in Ephesians 5, he says, All covetousness, let it not be named among you as is fitting for saints. And he demonstrated that it was possible to have real victory over greed in this life. When Paul said in Acts 20, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Now, all of that, you're thinking, Carl, you're about done, right? No. 
That's just the setup for the parable. Get comfortable. Uh, Look at the parable in verses 16 through 21. The central character in our parable is this rich man who thinks he's being wise and looking ahead. The problem is he's not looking far enough ahead. Namely, to the life to come. Now, this man is is hardworking and honest and moral. This man is the picture of a prudent, worldly man who rises to the top by industriousness, and then he retires to spend the latter part of his life according to his own pleasures. And here's his dilemma. Here's his big dilemma. He has a huge crop, but no place to store it. And so he asks himself, actually, he's on a good path for a moment. In verse 17... What shall I do? He's at the moral crossroads. What shall I do? The Lord has prospered me and blessed me beyond my wildest imagination. What shall I do? Here's his solution. I need several new storage buildings. Having solved the problem, he now can live in total self-indulgence and leisure. The problem is, with such a wealth of resources, his responsibilities had just begun. He mistakenly thinks, and here's one of his many mistakes, he mistakenly thinks he's only responsible for himself. The final question, in verse 20, when Jesus asked, Whose will be those things you have provided? Is ironic. The one person who will not enjoy the stuff is the man who hoarded it all. He's the one person who will not enjoy it. Let's analyze his problems. First of all, he's self-centered. I want you to notice how much the rich man spoke about himself. It's me, me, me. In the Greek text of 54 words, 18 are first-person words like I, me, and mine. He was totally self-absorbed. One sign of that is his inner dialogue. Look what he does in verse 17 to 19. Do you notice who he seeks counsel with? Himself. He doesn't seek external counsel. He just talks to himself in verses 17 through 19. He acts as if it's all about him and as if he were the owner and lord of these possessions. No one else figures into his calculations. He doesn't even thank God for prospering him. In verse 17, look how he speaks of it. He says to himself, I have no room. The 4th century church father and mentor of Augustine, the great church father Ambrose said, Oh, my foolish friend, you have room. You have barns, the cupboards of the needy, the house of the widow, and the mouth of the orphan. This is where you should stow your beings, your belongings. In verse 18, look at his boastfulness, because this usually comes along with greed. Look at his boastfulness. He speaks of the crops as his, as though he were the one who gave the increase. We see his selfishness. Everything is about him. No provision is made for anyone else. We see his crass worldliness. Look at verse 19. All he can think of is his ease, eating, drinking, merriment. He doesn't think anything about service, ministry, caring, relief of the poor. Another problem. This man looks for security in the wrong places. He thinks his security is in his riches. He's so contemporary. What is the craving of our generation? What we desire, no matter our political affiliation, is a womb-to-tomb security blanket that provides a huge safety net of promised health care and social security and every other conceivable benefit. 
whatever that is needed to be comfortable as long as we live. But the search for security without finding it in our God is idolatry. He's got another problem. Look at the parable again. He's too easily satisfied. He speaks to his soul, and look what his proposal is to his soul. Hedonism. He tells himself that he has inner satisfaction from this little arrangement. Of course, he's lying to himself because the soul can never find satisfaction in grain or food or drink or houses or recreation. God's response to him. Look carefully at verse 20. Because this is the response of a holy God who made you and made all the stuff. God's response is, you have no future. This man never prepared for eternity because wealth and ease in this life were his whole life. Did you hear that? He had never prepared for eternity because wealth and ease in this life was it for him. We hear the Lord's divine assessment of this man. Look at what the Lord calls him in verse 20. A fool. For all is lost. This man lost all his possessions and he lost heaven in one night. In biblical parlance, the fool isn't someone who's silly, but someone who has a distinct spiritual problem. Remember Psalm 14, the fool has said in his heart there is no God. The fool refuses to deal spiritual realities. He doesn't know God. He doesn't thank God for the plentiful produce since it's the blessing of God that makes rich. He didn't ask God what to do with the surplus. He didn't offer his time and talents and resources for God's service. He didn't acknowledge God's sovereignty over his lifespan. He didn't give one thought to God at all. He's a fool. Because he doesn't consider what is wisest between his 30,000th year and his 30 billionth year. Only what is between his 50th and 51st year. A wise man will always choose what is best for the long run. This man is a fool because he didn't even factor in God's intervention. But that didn't stop God from intervening that night. He's a fool because he ignored powerful truths such as this. He's mortal. Life is over. No second chances. He's lived not thinking about death one day and now it's time. He's a fool because he's accountable. He must now answer for his stewardship and his choices. He's a fool because he never says, if the Lord wills. He's a fool because he doesn't regard all those possessions as being given to him to steward and for which he will give an account for one day soon it will turn out. Look at the closing statement of Jesus in verse 21. So Jesus, if you didn't, if the Lord Jesus didn't get to you in his first statement in verse 15, where he makes a, a statement of the case, and then if the Lord Jesus didn't get to you in the parable in verses 16 through 19 and through 20, now Jesus comes at you again in verse 21, and he makes a closing argument. This man is a, is a parabolic figure. We're told this in, in verse 16. This is a parable. That's why we're preaching it. This man is a parabolic figure, but history is filled with real flesh and blood people who have succumbed to covetousness. Think of some of them with me. Achan, Nabal, Judas, Ananias and Sapphira. 
And Jesus concludes the lesson in verse 21, just as he set it up in verse 15. Here was someone who only thought about himself. Remember, he spoke exclusively in the first person. There's no place for God or others in his plans. This is the worldly mindset based on the assumption there is this life and it's one dimensional and it's all about me and my enjoyment. And this is it. Jesus' disciples, on the other hand, are those who amass heavenly treasures because that's where their hearts are. What does it mean? Look at the end of verse 21. Jesus said, so is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. What does it mean to be rich towards God? It's the antithesis of being rich towards self. Being rich towards God is to acknowledge that everything you have, your home, your funds, your stuff, your abilities, is from God's providential hand. And then striving to use what he has given you for the good of others and the glory of God. It means loving God and loving your neighbor. It means embracing a simpler lifestyle so you'll have more to give for the spread of Jesus' name and those who are hurting and in need. Many of your neighbors and co-workers and friends are not rich towards God. Perhaps you're not. They've invested nothing in his kingdom. Nothing. They've not valued him. They've not valued time worshiping him. They've not valued knowing him. They've not valued being with his people. They are poor towards God. When God looks as a judge at your life, he will not care how shrewd an investor you were and how good a saver you were. If you plead, but Lord, I had barns bursting at the seams, he will not applaud you. You can enlarge your savings and your huge accounts to hold it all. You can plan your retirement so you'll have nothing to do but decide which golf course to play tomorrow. You can live as if this is all there is, only to discover at the end of your life you have nothing and you are a fool in the eyes of the judge. Or you can be rich towards God because you gave and gave and gave. How do we apply this? profound, contemporary, relevant parable. Let me make several applications. First of all, the practical point of the parable is don't be a fool. A fool who lives for this world and gives no thought for the judgment and the life to come. By the way, this is the only place in the Bible where something looking like retirement is spoken of. And here it's in the context of disapproval. Of course, the scriptures recognize slowing down and aging, but retiring to a life that's only about self-indulgence finds no favor with God. I would tell you by way of application that American evangelicals are the wealthiest group of Christians in history. That's a fact beyond dispute. American evangelicals are the wealthiest group of Christians in history. And they also have the lowest giving rate for the last 500 years. I get a newsletter from a group called the Ronsvall Group who tracks American giving. And it's been pointed out in the last five years, American evangelicals average giving 1.9 of their income to the cause of Christ. They are, to use Jesus' words, fools. They are not rich towards God. Their giving is a clear indication of where their heart lies. 
Is that you? Now let me point out, because someone will come up and say this, and I'm going to agree with you right now. Yay, you're a good Bible scholar. The Bible doesn't condemn wealth as inherently evil. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Job, David, Solomon, Joseph of Arimathea, and I could name dozens more in the Bible were all very rich. And they were godly men. Scripture does warn us about the dangers of wealth in the strongest terms. Wealth is spiritually dangerous for both those who have it and those who aspire to have it. There are perils to prosperity. Wealth can, in the parable of the sower, we read of wealth choking out the word of God. Or as Paul says in Timothy, can create snares and temptations and give you a false sense of security. I want to ask you, when you read about this very prosperous farmer, how do you respond when you see him hitting it big? Bumper crop, barns full, needing to expand and planning this way. When he says, my plan is to be, take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. Did you sort of secretly, when we read that, say, man, wouldn't that be the life? This man has success, satisfaction, and security. What more could he want? But Jesus didn't see this man enjoying life. He saw him facing death. I could point out how often Jesus addresses this issue. He does it with great frequency. It's amazing how we have the ability to read our New Testament, especially the Gospels, and just sort of read past that and realize, oh, this is the 14th time Jesus has talked about the dangers of riches. Jesus sums up his philosophy in Luke chapter 9 when he says, What profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? Another application. Covetousness and greed are insanely foolish because you will lose all your possessions the minute you die, and that might be this night. Proverbs 11 puts it in very clear focus when it says, Riches don't profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. However rich you are, I know this about your manner of death, every single person I'm talking to. However rich you are, you'll die poor. Because there will be no U-Haul behind your hearse. You will leave everything for someone else. Sandy and I have had the, the privilege, usually through tears, in the last few years of going through both of our mom's estates. They didn't have that much. And by the time we had sorted it all down and thrown a lot of stuff away and taken it to Goodwill, and we sorted it all down, about all that I took away from my mom's house was this blanket and my grandfather's cane. That was it. Covetousness and greed are insanely foolish. But then I would tell you by way of application, men misplace their discontent. They are far too satisfied with what they are, but they're discontent with what they have. When the reverse ought to be the case for every one of you. You should be content with what you have. That's the biblical model we are told in 1 Timothy chapter 6. If we have food and clothing, we should be content. But we should be incredibly discontent with who we are so that we might continue to strive for godliness. How do you know someone is covetousness, covetous and greedy? I can tell you. What's in the heart comes out of the lips. 
I know within five minutes if a man I'm talking to is a coveter and greedy because he starts bringing up his stuff, his accounts, his investments. They always are talking about possessions and monetary plans. I had a conversation two weeks ago with a gentleman. We hadn't been talking for three minutes. And he said, by the time I'm 40, I want to have this. And by the time I'm 60, I plan to do that. Or perhaps it's that person who's always talking to you about the new online shopping thing or the package that's waiting for them on their porch when they get home. The Amazon man knows the way to my house with his eyes closed. Let me ask you. Are you greedy and covetous? As I hold up the mirror of God's word and show you this man, you say, I see myself. Or do you ever experience joy in giving away your resources, in seeing the kingdom go forward as you help? Or do you struggle to open your hand and give generously and sacrificially? Today, may the Lord give you grace to hear this word and respond in repentance and wisdom and obedience. Let's pray together. Our Father, right now our flesh and the world and the devil are all telling us to forget what we have just heard. But we plead that your Holy Spirit would bring this word to our remembrance over and over again and transform our very desires that you would work in us a deep contentment and enable us to put off all greed and covetousness. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.